1: My guest, I've known since 1974, when at the University of Michigan, we tried to recruit this elite student-athlete quarterback to attend the university his father had graduated from. Tony Dungy is an elite leader and teacher. His successes are a result of being grounded in strong Christian principles. He was the first African-American football coach to win a Super Bowl and has been elected into the National Football League Hall of Fame. His focus on diversity and inclusion has been broad and wide. As a coach, he mentored Herm Edwards, the head coach at Arizona State today, Jim Caldwell, who succeeded him at Indianapolis, and Mike Tomlin, the current head coach with the Pittsburgh Steelers. An extraordinary person who has made the leap into television, writing books, and speaking engagements. Our guest, Coach Tony Dungy. Welcome, friends. Tony, we go back a long ways. I mean, I was coaching at the University of Michigan, and you were a senior at Jackson (laughs) High School, and we were looking to recruit you.
0: I remember it well. My dad was a Michigan man, too. uh, Bled maize and blue. My mom went to Michigan State, graduated from there. So I had that dynamic. It was all uh, I could do not to go to Michigan because I I did want to honor my dad. I loved it. Uh, Michigan had a great program. But they had a um, sophomore quarterback named Dennis Franklin, who was a great player. And I wanted to, to give it a chance to play. So I ended up going to Minnesota.
1: An excellent basketball player. So you were able to do both sports.
0: Yeah, I had fun, played for a year, uh, and then got hurt after my my sophomore year of football and didn't play anymore. But Minnesota had a great basketball program at the time, got a chance to, you know, play with some of those guys and have fun. So it was a a good experience for me. I, I wouldn't do it any other way. But we didn't get that time at University of Michigan together, but we did catch up down the road.
1: Let's go back. What was it like being a young black man growing up in the 60s and 70s in Jackson? What that
0: was You know like- what? Yeah, it was really, really interesting time. I was born in 1955. So 1968, uh, Dr. King is killed. I'm 12 years old. And Dr. King, Robert Kennedy, all the, the kind of rioting in that summer of 68. And I'm asking my dad, what is going on? What is all this about? And we lived in a little small industrial town. Our side of town was predominantly African-American. Then when I got to junior high and high school, we got bused to the the main school, which was predominantly white. And that was a a different experience from growing up, living in an all-black neighborhood, going to 95% black elementary school, and then going to a situation where it is integrated. It, It was different. And we had to learn. But I'll tell you what happened to me. Sports- really helped me so much because you start playing on teams you uh, have teammates you get to know guys and uh, you realize that we all can work together and we can be in this together and you're fighting for a common goal you're trying to build a winning team and that becomes more important than the differences but it, it was a tough time uh, 1968 olympics I, I i chuckle now at all this debate about the kneeling and what's going on right. 68 Olympics, Tommy Smith and John Carlos, you know, have a a protest at the 200-meter finals. And pretty soon, all the young African-American boys are saying, we're not going to stand up for the national anthem. And it was the same thing that we're, we're seeing now. And I remember asking my dad about it. And my dad was a veteran, World War II vet. And he said, well, that's why we fought, to give you choices. Uh, make sure you're doing what you think is going to make the situation better. Don't just do what everybody else is doing. Don't follow the crowd. If you feel strongly about something, do it. That kind of became my mantra from then on. Um, what, what are we doing to make things better? And that's what we really had to look for. Uh, but it was, a, it was not an easy time, that's for sure
1: somehow in your upbringing your values your christianity the foundation of who you are as a person formed because when we met again with the steeler's you had this you know quiet presence and intellect but you were really grounded in these values and and principles that I really, at that point, didn't come to respect until after I got fired a couple of times.
0: Well, I'll tell you, Jed, that was from my mom and dad and the way they raised us. During all this time when you'd say, hey, this wasn't fair or this happened or, or whatever, my mom and dad were, you know, hey, this is how we're going to do it in our family. This is how we're going to treat people. We're going to respect people no matter what. It doesn't matter how they treat you. This is what the Bible says. This is what God says. This is what we're going to do. And that's the way they raised us. And I can remember my mom telling me over and over and over again, what you do is not as important as how you do it. It doesn't matter what job you had. They were school teachers, but they felt like teaching the best that they could, making sure their kids knew everything possible. That was the important thing, not how much money you made or or, or how anybody looked at you, but how were you doing what, you know, what you were supposed to do and and what God gave you. So uh, I I can't credit them enough. Both of them have passed away now, but the, the way they raised me and my three siblings, it was invaluable.
1: Well, you also have this sense of humor because I remember being a huge baseball fan. And when I first joined the organization, he told me how I'd be able to sit in the dugout with Chuck Tanner. And I remember going through batting practice. I introduced myself and asked him, if it'd be all right to sit in the dugout. And he looked at me like I was nuts.
0: <laughs> well, I had, that was, I had to break you into the organization. But, uh, you did. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you
1: did. I, I mean, absolutely. But I mean, you know, working with the Steelers, that foundation of understanding alignment and stability of an organization, yeah.
0: You know, I don't think you come to appreciate it until after you leave. I appreciated it so much. And it had such an impact on me being there for 10 years, two as a player and eight as a coach, working for Chuck Knoll, playing for him, and then working for the Rooney family. Nothing like it because uh, you you saw how it should be done, how it could be done the right way. And I'll never forget, Jed, my, my first couple of weeks there. We come into the first meeting and Coach Noel sits down with all the rookies in the minicamp and his first words are, welcome to the National Football League. And you can hear him talking like this. Hey, you're getting paid to play football. So that makes it your profession. But please don't make football your whole life. If you make football your whole life, you're going to leave the game disappointed. And I remember writing that down as a rookie. And what is he talking about? I'm here to win Super Bowls. I want to make the team. I want to make money. And he's saying, "All that's great. But don't make it your whole life. You've got to find other things that will fulfill you. And then going into Mr. Rooney's office and him saying, hey, it's great. You made the team. That's fantastic. You're going to love it here. But, hey, this comes with a responsibility. You're representing The National Football League now, you're representing the Steelers, you're representing the city of Pittsburgh. Hey, we want you to make Pittsburgh a better place to live. And how many places do you go to work where people tell you that? Hey, find other things in life. Don't get focused in on your job. Make Pittsburgh a better place to live. And they believed that, and they lived it out every day for us to see. It had such an impact on me going down the road. That's what I tried to do with my teams when I I got to be in charge.
1: How did coaching come about? Here you are, really bright you know, you end up playing for the Steelers. How does the coaching bug hit you?
0: Came there. I was a quarterback, as you know, all the way through middle school, high school, college. And uh, they had Terry Bradshaw and Mike Kruzik and said, we don't need a quarterback, but Coach no likes smart guys. You, you can switch positions. So they moved me to defense. I had never really played defense, got there trying to learn and You know, hanging around, asking questions. Two years, we win one Super Bowl and I get traded to the the 49ers. And a year and a half later, I've traded again and finally cut. So I'm 25 years old and not really knowing what I'm going to do. And I get this call from Coach Noel and he says, You know, you've got a good head for the game. You work hard. I think you could be a good coach if you're interested. And I had no idea what I was going to do. And he said, you know, we've got a spot, we'll create a spot. You can help the defensive coaches break down film and learn, kind of learn the craft. And I was 25 years old with a chance to coach for the Pittsburgh Steelers. Are you kidding me? I, I could not believe it, but it was the best thing that ever happened to me.
1: During our five years together, some of the things I think about, number one, how well Chuck knew everybody's position and how when you became a coach, He was in your drills until he thought you knew what you were doing.
0: I when I was a rookie, uh, Bud Carson was our defensive backfield coach and defensive coordinator, and he said, he told us, he said, now I'm going to tell you a lot of things. Coach Noel will come over here. If he tells you something different, do what he says, do because that's what we're going to do. And you're right, he could coach every position on the field. He just knew everything. He saw everything. He could be watching your linebacker drill and see out of the corner of his eye and come over to my defensive backs, hey, we need to do this. This guy stepped the wrong way. Where is he aligned? He saw everything. It really was great to be under that because he taught not only what to do, but how to do it. And to me, that was so important down the road because so many coaches had great X's and O's. Hey, I've got this plan. We can run this play. We can run this defense. But how to do it? How do you get off blocks? How do you tackle? As you remember the first day of, of camp, block and tackle by the numbers every year 29 years hey contact follow through just he believed in that and and that never left me fundamentals of how you win and and i stayed with that all my career the
1: other thing was he gave us incredible freedom on defense in terms of how we structured our meetings in terms of not demanding you staying extra late hours we had the films broken down we did it by down and distance so we had a pretty structured approach to how we put our game plans together. And he, didn't, he never interfered.
0: What I learned from him was hire good people and don't be afraid to delegate. Tell them what you want. Hey, this is what I want. This is what we've got to get done. Now you guys have to figure out how to do that. And we were home, as you know, at 8 o'clock, 8.30 right. at night. I went to Kansas City. Right, right, right. <laughs> My wife thought I was having an affair. And the first I come home at 2.30 in the morning, she said, where have you been? I said, well, we're putting this, doing this. And, well, how come you were home at 8.30 in Pittsburgh and you're home at 2 o'clock at night here? Marty a great coach, different kind of system. He wanted to see everything. He would tell you what to do, and then you'd have meetings to see if you were doing it the way he wanted, and he wanted to know every little detail. Coach Noel wasn't like that. Hey, I'll watch the film. I'll see if you're getting it done. You tell me what you're going to do and we'll all get our work done and and be efficient and get home. It was such a blessing to work that way and know that you could win that way.
1: And then you have a chance to go to Minnesota and become the defensive coordinator again for Denny. So what was that environment like?
0: That was great. Same type of thing. Denny would, he he really had an offensive mind. So he'd just say, hey, here's what I want on defense. I want to just make sure we're getting pressure. I want to make sure we stop so-and-so from running the ball, but he would trust you to do it. And then He also knew by this point that I was probably going to be a head coach. And he did things to prepare me. He let me sit in the personnel meeting. He talked to me about decisions he was going to make. I remember when he was going to change quarterbacks. and He brought me in. I'm I'm coaching defense. He said, I just want you to know why I'm changing quarterbacks. And you're going to have to make this decision one day. And here's what went into it. And he was fantastic, mentoring me and helping me grow.
1: So you get the opportunity to join Tampa Bay, taking over a team that hasn't won. So what was that like going in there? Because the teams you'd been in, other than our last couple of years at the Steelers, have been pretty successful.
0: Yeah, I was with winning franchises and successful people. And you kind of think everything's that way. Well, you're right. Now I go to Tampa. They've had 13 straight losing seasons. And it's cultural. Everything is just, you know, things you can't even believe. I, one of the first things I did, I called every veteran player and I said, hey, I want you to come in and talk to me. I want to introduce myself, but I want to find out you know, what's clicking in your mind. And I really wanted to know, and the question I asked him, why aren't we winning? And most guys would have one or two things that you know they they'd thought about or one or two things that bugged them. Hardy Nickerson, who had played for us yeah, in, yeah, in yeah, right, Pittsburgh, right. he was the middle linebacker. He had seven pages of legal pad notes. <laughs> you want to know why we aren't winning? Well, how about this? How about this? We, we stay at crummy hotels on the road. We don't have enough towels in the locker room. They took the Coke machine out because they don't want us to get you know free Coke after practice, and it just went on and on, and some of the things were little crazy stuff that we could fix. Some of the things were deep rooted, but I, I saw right away it was a culture. We've got to start thinking like winners. we've got to think about winning off the field as well. I brought Mr. Rooney's comments back and Chuck Knowles comments. Hey, we want to win, but we got to be good role models. We, we, you guys have a lot of young boys looking at you. How you carry yourself is important. And they, they never thought about things like that. So how, how we become teammates, how we help each other be better. Changing that culture took a while, but we finally did and started winning. And, and it was a lot of fun because once we started winning, then the town got, got into it and, and it was great. great.
1: So when you talk about your general manager and ownership, how did that alignment work?
0: I was really blessed. In both places, I was. Uh, Our owners, Malcolm Glazer with the Bucs, and then later Jim Irsay with the Colts, really delegated. And they said, hey, we want to win, but it's going to be the general manager and the coach that put the plan together. And I had Rich McKay in Tampa and Bill (laughs) Polian in Indy, and they were great communicators and great listeners. Mm-hmm. Uh, they both had football backgrounds, you know, Rich, his dad coached at USC and he'd been around football his whole life. he listened. listen, what kind of players do you want? What, what's going to make us successful? What kind of atmosphere do you want to create? This is a funny story. We had a, a, our draft board and we talked about being high character. And so we said, we're going to have part of this board where we just, we X guys out. They're good players, but we're not going to take them because of something we've heard about character or whatever. And so we talked it over with our owner and he was all on board. Oh yeah, we want high quality guys. The night before the draft, he comes in and he looks at our board over there and there's about 20 recognizable names. And he's like, what? If he's there, we're not going to draft it. We're not going to take this guy. We said, no, we, that's what we said. And we got to stick to it. But he gave us that flexibility to do it and Rich was on board. And so then you start getting the, Warwick Dunn's and Derek Brooks's and John Lynch's that come in and they become the fabric of your team and that's what you want. You're winning and then
1: all of a sudden they make a change. And that has got to be really difficult. I mean, you're so close, you've been so close, and now they say they want to go in a different direction.
0: No, that, that hurt. We went 13 straight losing seasons, most of them double digit losses. We come in the second year, we go to the playoffs, and the fourth year we go to the NFC championship game. Fifth year, we go to the playoffs. Sixth year, we go to the playoffs. So we're right there. We're close. We just can't get that big win to get us to the Super Bowl. But now we've kind of gotten spoiled. Oh, we're winning. We're in the playoffs, but that's not good enough. And so the owners came to me and after we lost to Philadelphia in the playoffs and said, we're going to make a change. We don't think you can get us to the Super Bowl. And uh, that did hurt uh, because, gosh, you watch the, the program grow from where we were kind of a laughing stock to – Mm-hmm. Everybody respects us. Uh, and I was hurt. I was disappointed. But I think my Christian faith at that point got me through. The, hey, God must have something better in store. And three days later, Jim Mercy calls and says, hey, we're making a change. And I want you to be our coach in Indianapolis. And you're going to get to coach Peyton Manning. So it was uh, not a bad trade-off.
1: Having been with Terry Bradshaw and then you get Peyton, what, what, what are the similarities and differences between those two?
0: Quite a bit of difference. Uh, very talented. That's the similarity. Both of them uh, extremely talented, accurate, good throwers. Peyton was just so much in preparation and wanting to do everything just right. And Terry was more of, hey, if I see what's going on, I know what's going on, I'm, I'll make the right throws. I, we don't want to overcomplicate this. And Peyton would every week, he'd come in with his legal pad. What are we going to do about this? How are we going to handle this? Can we get to this play? Just super prepared. Uh, But the thing I loved about him, he wanted to help everybody else be better. Uh, My last year coaching, 2008, we'd already won a Super Bowl. Peyton had been the MVP three times already. We drafted a young receiver in the first round from Ohio State, Anthony Gonzalez. And Ohio State's class schedule, they're still going to class in June, so he couldn't come to any of the offseason workouts. Peyton on his own, without anyone talking to him, got in his car twice a week, drove from Indianapolis to Columbus, Ohio, took the playbook, spent an hour on the board with Anthony, threw an hour, and drove back. Eight hours, two times a week, just to help one rookie receiver get a little head start. And that that's Peyton Manning all the way and why he's great.
1: And that obviously helped your It was part of your culture. of what? Oh, it was.
0: Of- it was, yep. And so you, you blend that in and all the guys – get to that point. Hey, we've got to help each other be better. We've got to grow. We want to be in this together. And, and that's the one thing I was so proud of our guys. We had great unity there. We had seven years I was in Indianapolis. We're in the playoffs every year, but it was a team that was together and I think got the most out of their talent every single year. You think back
1: on one of the things with the Steelers our Friday goal line scrimmages in full pads. And when the announcers used to come in and look at that, they'd look at you like, you know, what? What are we doing? Did you keep any of those things?
0: I learned. I, I like toughness, but I, coaching with Denny Green, hey, get in the players fresh. You're going to need them. And and I learned to scale back down. But that's all I knew. That's the way I grew up. I remember Dick Vermeil coming in. He was broadcasting, right, watching right, our Friday right. practice, and he was one of the toughest, hard nosed guys. He was like, "What are you guys doing? I can't believe this." It's the way Coach Noel he he said, "You play like you practice. You got to prepare, and it's a physical game." So I got that part of it, but, but I think I was able to tailor and adjust a little bit. And, um, you know, I, I still kept some of the tough training camp practices and the regimen we had, but, you know, take care of the players a little bit and keep them fresh.
1: You also, Tony, you and Lauren went through a really difficult time there when, you're, when your son committed yeah. suicide. I mean, that had to just be – I can't even imagine that. That had to be just horrible.
0: There's no manual, no playbook for that. As a parent, you're never ready to lose a child. But again, I think it brought our family closer together. It definitely brought us closer together with the team. So many of the guys just rallied around us at that point, and uh, it helped us. And that, that was the end of 2005. 2006, we come into the season, Gary Brackett, our middle linebacker and our defensive captain, he lost three family members in the course of six months. His mother died from cancer. His brother died from leukemia. And I think his dad just died from a broken heart. And so he's there with that situation. Then week four, we're playing the Jaguars. Reggie Wayne has a great game, makes a game-winning catch for us. We come in the locker room, and our PR man tells me, hey, you got to talk to Reggie. We just got to call. His brother died in a car accident just a few minutes ago. And You go from this euphoria of no. game-winning catch to I've got to tell him his brother got killed. But we had those things happen, and that team just pulled together and supported one another, and we fought through the ups and downs that year and went to the Super Bowl. But I really think it was because of the closeness that that we had.
1: In terms of retiring, what brought you to that point? Because you look at guys today that are still coaching. You're (laughs) a young man compared to Belichick. And Sean Payton.
0: Yeah. No, it's crazy. Tom Moore uh, recruited me. He was my offensive coordinator. He's still coaching in in, uh, Tampa. Bruce Arians and I were roommates. We coached together in Kansas City. He's still coaching. Uh, But for me, I started at 25. And I I coached 28 years and had some great times. Uh, I had my family growing up. My boys were now uh, getting to high school and college. My son, Eric, was playing at University of Oregon. And I wanted to see him play. And I I just felt like it was time. I had a great career. God had blessed us and it was time to step down. And and I was 53. I don't regret it. I don't regret it at all.
1: You've got so many uh, verticals to what you've done in terms of your foundation, the books you've written, the causes you've taken up for young men and so forth. So, I mean, how you made those decisions on what things to get involved in because you've, you've just really given back.
0: I, and I think that that was my mom and, and just saying, what you do isn't important. How you do it, what you're doing it for, you know, Mr. Rooney, make your community a better place to live. And I was able to pass that on to the Bucs. I live in Tampa now and we're still Derek Brooks, who was one of those great players on those, those early Bucks teams. He's here. He's got a charter high school and he's got a foundation that's helping young people. John Lynch has given out Tons of scholarships here in the area. Warwick Dunn has gotten homes for single moms, 175 homes uh, for yeah. single moms over the years. Those guys caught the vision too. So to me, passing that on and letting guys know, hey, you can have an impact, not just on the field, but you can have an impact in life and seeing them do it. That, that's what really thrills me.
1: You have this recent book about the soul of the team. <laughs> With your different experiences that you've had as a player and as a coach, How did that theme arise?
0: That was it. It was building on. And I get so many people now that ask, hey, can you come in and talk to our corporation? Can you talk to our group about team building? And it's not just high school teams or college teams, but it's businesses. We're not together. We're not unified. How can we talk about that? I wanted to put that together and put it in a book form. And what is is it all about? How do you build a championship team? And we really looked on four principles. And that's where the title came from, S-O-U-L. Selflessness, owning your role, uh, unity, and having a larger purpose. You know, if you look at championship teams, that's what they're built on unselfish guys, everybody ready to play their role and what they had to do to contribute, being unified. Doesn't mean being absolutely the same, but whatever differences we have, we could put them apart because we're focused on the goal, and then having a bigger purpose. It's more than just me. Going to the Pro Bowl. It's more than me winning a Super Bowl ring. It's more than me catching 20 balls. Uh, what's our bigger purpose? Yes, it's, it's to win a championship. But what are we doing in, in the community? What are we doing in life more so than just on the field? And if you have that, you got a chance to have a championship team.
1: One of the other things you've done is in terms of developing other coaches have gone on to become head coaches, whether it's Mike Mike Tomlin or Jim Caldwell. You talked about what Denny did. Were there some specific things you did as well?
0: That had a big impact on me. Denny really wanted to help me out, and he was intentional about it. So when I got to that position and I saw some young men who had the ability, and you could see the characteristics they had. I wanted to help them and help them grow. So having Jim Caldwell and Herm Edwards first, making him my assistant head coach and letting him in on the personnel meetings and having those talks like Denny did with me. Hey, here's something that you're going to face. Here's what we've got to be ready for. And then Jim Caldwell took that position, uh, hiring Mike Tomlin at 29 years old and giving him his first opportunity in the NFL. Lovey Smith, hiring him and giving him his first opportunity. But it's really just letting guys show the talent that they have and the potential. Uh, so that was that was another thing that I'm proud of uh, those guys developing un- underneath me. As you look at
1: you know, the things you've done now, the TV analyst, you know, <laughs> going on there and, you know, having at times to critique people. How do you balance, you know, where you get so you got a Rex Ryan on TV and he kind of goes ballistic and you again take this measured approach? with calmness and purpose and don't get all hijacked about what's going on.
0: Well, I'm fortunate and and blessed to work at NBC. Uh, Dick Ebersole, you know, 12 years ago came to me when I was ready to retire and said, I'd like you to come work for us. And I I said, Dick, I I don't think so because I don't have a gimmick. I'm not that type of guy. And he said, no, that's not what we want. We want to educate our fans. We want you to help the fans know what's going on. And I said, well, I can really do that. And so that became my approach to to help the viewer who maybe doesn't know all that much about football understand what's happening on the field. And then comes the idea of criticism because you're going to have to be honest and you're going to have to be fair. And sometimes you've got former colleagues or you've got players that are trying their very best, but they just don't get it done in that particular play. How do you say it in a way that you're not attacking someone personally But just say, hey, here was a mistake or here was a situation where X person didn't get the job done. Uh, And you've got to go back and talk to these guys because they're your friends. But I think being honest and saying, you know what, this this is what I'm paid to do. And it's my opinion. But I'm not going to just blow someone up. I'm not going to throw people under the bus because that's going to make for good TV. I'm going to try to explain what they did wrong and maybe what they can do better the next time.
1: So when you think about college football and, and professional football now with the pandemic, what are, your, what are your thoughts about it? I mean, the Big Ten's just come back online. Notre Dame's had to cancel a football game. Uh, so far, the NFL is, has been able to move forward. What are your concerns?
0: Yeah, I, I'm very concerned about uh, spreading this, this virus. And I think we have to be extremely careful it's been amazing uh, doing Notre Dame football now and talking to NFL coaches. Everybody's telling me they're coaching more pandemic protocol than they're coaching football, getting their players to understand what they have to do. Hey, wear your mask. Be careful where you go. Things that we would tell our kids now, but they've got to tell 25 and 30-year-old guys. Uh, but that's important because they've got to keep their players on the field. It's crazy. I can't even imagine all the things you have to do as a football coach to game plan and get ready and prepare. And then all of this other to, to educate your players on this. So it, it's it's tough right now. I think we're doing a spectacular job. I expected to see a lot more outbreaks than this. Uh, but I think people have said, hey, we, we've got to coach this just like we attack a football team.
1: Well, you being a, a basketball fan with the NBA is done with the bubble. It's got to be is pretty spectacular in terms of how and I
0: I thought that's what you would have to do to keep it going I didn't think baseball football would be able to go without a bubble because these, mm-hmm. these guys are human so when you go home you're gonna go pick up takeout food and you're gonna go stop at the gas station and you you, you have a life to live so how are you going to stay totally clean I just thought it would be difficult but they, they've done a much better job than I anticipated
1: now, it's been it's been remarkable but Every day, you don't know. I mean, you talk, about, you, don't. you talk about the uncertainty of life, what we dealt with seven months ago and what we're dealing with now. It's just, I mean, that's where religion, faith, I mean, yes. those things are really become critical to your life.
0: Absolutely, absolutely.
1: As you talked about your parents and how they grounded you with the successes you've had, you're the same person, In your, I mean, you've grown, but in terms of yourself, in terms of ego, you've been egoless. I mean, you've been, you know, this person that's been really successful, done it the right way and has really given back. So, I mean, I'm, I, I'm honored to have had a chance to spend five years with you in the press box and you look looking at me like I was nuts somehow.
0: <laughs> no, we had a great five years, but you talk about that. And I really do have to go back to my, my parents and my high school coach, Dave Driscoll. He gave me a little card when I was 14 years old and I was a sophomore and I was gonna be the quarterback. And I'll never forget, it It said, talent is God-given, be thankful. Praise is man-given, be humble. Conceit is self-given, be careful. And I kept that card for a long time, and it's what I live by.
1: No doubt, profound. Thanks for uh, sharing time with us. Stay healthy. Uh, Best to Lauren and
0: the family. Thank you so much, Jed. It's great catching up with you again. Uh, Appreciate you.